0: The Scaling Japan Podcast, a podcast about how to grow your business from one hundred thousand dollars and beyond, and
1: beyond in the land of the rising sun. Welcome to the Scaling Japan Podcast. I am your host Tyson Battino, and on today's episode, we have Timothy Connor for round two. Timothy is the Founder and Managing Director of Synovate, which provides a wide range of services to companies wanting to do market entry from market insight, marketing and sales, and even helping organizations with finding the right leader and advisors for their market entry efforts. He has been helping corporations enter the Japanese market for more than 20 years, and he is an expert in the consumer product space. In our first episode, Timothy enlightened us about making sure you have product market fit for the Japan market before doing a large market entry effort. And today, Timothy is going to talk about the different stages companies go through, market entry included, and finding the right leader to guide your business based on the business life cycle in Japan. So, Timothy, could you tell us a little bit more about the business life cycle of a company entering Japan? Sure. Great to be back, Tyson.
0: Nice to speak to you again. So today, what I hope to talk about with you is something that I call strategic leadership. And strategic leadership is based on the concept of the business life cycle that a company would go through from the moment that they decide to look at the Japan market and try to launch in the market once they've launched to try and grow and grow the business in the market. And then after they've grown for a while, potentially come to a point when they need to replace, or they have to find someone for their top positions when they need to find someone as a permanent CEO or country manager, or perhaps they've got a sudden blank and they need to make a change in their leadership. And they can make use of something that we call interim leadership to a point where perhaps the business has gone okay, or maybe it's gone awry somewhere and you need to make some changes, some transformations, or potentially you have a business going and you wanna start something new. And so going through this whole life cycle of a business in Japan, that's what I call strategic leadership.
1: Gotcha, thanks for that. So for the business life cycle, so I guess the first stage would be market entry, I guess my assumption would be the next stage would be growth. Uh, But could you highlight the business life cycle? Sure. We have launch leadership,
0: which is market entry, followed by the stage when you grow, which is growth leadership, which is then followed by making a change to leadership, which is interim or strategic change leadership, followed by transforming the business, which is transformation leadership. When you start something in parallel or you completely change and restructure the business.
1: Excellent. And uh, the reason I want to get you to talk about this topic is I've met quite a few country managers and sometimes I really got the sense that I think the person they hired was very talented experience, but wasn't really a match for the stage or what the company was looking for at that moment they probably didn't do enough due diligence or maybe a lack of understanding on their end of actually what is needed for this stage but that's kind of my experience with leadership and country managers leading market entry yeah could you tell us a little bit more about why choosing the right leadership is so critical
0: let's stop and and think about launching a business into japan depending on the sector that you're in the person that you need on the ground, the first boots on the ground, so to speak, can be very, very different depending on the sector. If you're coming into a, for example, a highly regulated business sector, you're probably going to need someone who's very well versed in the regulatory environment that you're entering. Whereas if you're coming into a sector that's very much a fast moving, for example, fast moving consumer goods, you might need someone who's very sales oriented. So the first person on the ground might be a sales type person. And choosing the right person is very, very important. And the way to think about that is what is just this, what do you really need to get launched in Japan? Unfortunately, many, many companies when they come and they try to launch in Japan, I think pretty much everyone already in Japan will empathize with this. You assume that What you're doing in another country or in another international market, you can just imprint onto Japan and do the same thing. Follow the same playbook. As we all know, that's absolutely not going to work. Japan is a very specific market. There are very specific aspects to it. It's the third largest economy in the world but it's probably the most developed and surely in terms of the consumer market, the most competitive simply because of all the structures that are in place. And so you need to be able to see that to find the right person who's going to be able to navigate that for you.
1: And I think a lot of things I've seen was uh, they hired more of an operator where they just needed a deal maker to get the product launched.
0: Sure. That's definitely true. And You know, we talked a little bit um, in our other episode, and it's worth mentioning again, that getting anything done in Japan, pretty much across the board, I think pretty much everyone will agree, takes about three times as long. Things take a lot longer for many, many reasons. You have all of the various structures that you need to learn and navigate. When people first come in, when companies first launch in Japan, they don't, they really underestimate the importance of relationships and connections. And how building those relationships from day one will set the stage for success or
1: not in this market. So I think that's one reason, like, you know, let's say underestimating the amount of time it takes or the skills needed. But what are some other reasons why a company choose the wrong leadership in the first place?
0: One of the more common examples I've seen of mistaken hiring in the beginning, um, there are two versions. One is we're going to Japan, so we have to hire a Japanese person. And if we're going to Japan and we have to hire a Japanese person, and we don't really know the market, the only pool that we can work with are Japanese people who speak English. And suddenly the whole idea of being able to communicate with somebody sort of overwhelms the need to look at what are the critical skills that this person might need. And you might end up with the first person on the ground is a local Japanese person who really doesn't know the market. The other version is when you come into a market and you hire somebody who's like yourself, you hire someone who you like because you get along with them well, regardless of nationality. And you meet them and they're really funny and they've been abroad before and say, oh yeah, they're just like us Americans and et cetera. And you hire them because they're really great people. But again, do they have the skills that you need to get your business launched? You know, this person is going to have to represent the company with all of the stakeholders here in Japan and build those relationships for you. Are they going to be able to do that or not? This is a really key consideration and it's crucial to success.
1: Yeah, I've seen it go wrong uh, many, many times. I think you also mentioned before, like also kind of maybe a lack of awareness of the people available.
0: That's true. You're only dealing with a small pool of people who speak English. That limits the pool of people you can speak with. And finding those people is going to be then limited by who you're working with to find these people. And so you don't really know about all of the other potential talent that's in the market. And there's a lot of talent that's not in the market because Japan is extremely tight. The labor market's extremely tight. There's very little liquidity because people don't want to move. They don't move a lot. There's just no job hopping. Also part of that is the... uh, misconceptions about the labor laws. And I I don't think we should get into labor discussions today, but it's worth thinking through the aspects of that and how you hire someone and how you find that person.
1: Yeah, I can see why you help companies with finding the right person. You have operational experience and you know the person. So I think you can find the match better. I mean, I, I assume a recruiter would know and could do it. But I think someone like you who's actually done it multiple times and you you really know the ins and outs of market entry could probably match the better candidate to the product or service based on the stage of the company and their desire for growth, like what speed and whatnot.
0: Thank you for that. Generally speaking, recruiting companies are going to be looking for candidates who you would hire as a permanent employee. And so they'll be looking for people who are looking only for permanent roles and you'll be hiring someone on a permanent basis. And knowing that you're hiring someone on a permanent basis can slow down the actual search itself. My concept of strategic leadership is that it's extremely flexible and not necessarily a permanent employment agreement with the candidate.
1: Oh, that makes perfect sense, I guess, uh, because I mean, if I was a recruiter. You know, I definitely would like that nice, juicy commission. And so you know, someone only coming in for like six months or something that doesn't work with the typical cost structure.
0: Sure, and that's on the candidate side as well. It makes perfect sense that if you've
1: spent the last 25, 30
0: years with one, two companies, maybe even three because you, you have certain skills, you've always been a permanent employee. You want to continue being a permanent employee. You know, you're paying into the pension plan, you're paying into the shakai hoken, et cetera. And so it's a big leap to go from there to a not permanent role or perhaps a launch startup role as well, especially for Japanese. And so this is where you can consider, and this is why I, in terms of strategic leadership, perhaps you don't need a Japanese person There's a huge pool of Japanese people who have skills like this, also non-Japanese who have skills in the market as well. And so if you actually stop and consider that maybe I don't have to have a Japanese national, maybe the skills I'm looking for are better delivered by a non-Japanese. really opens up the size of the pool of people that you could potentially speak to. This is part of the idea as well, that there's a a large group of people who are not necessarily looking
1: for permanent roles. I can definitely see how just focusing on Japanese, but who can speak English is like uh, extremely limiting your options.
0: Yes, it's, a, it's an unfortunate aspect of the entire market here <clears throat> that pretty much every recruiting company will, will lament is the lack of English speakers. Although I think that slowly but surely it's growing, but a lot of these uh, English speaking people are not in large corporate companies if they've been abroad for a a few years and their English is good and they've learned a lot about the world, they're probably going to be a bit more, let's say, liberal in their approach to work. And they may be in startups or they may be working on their own, but they may be out of that sort of pool of potential candidates um, that traditional recruiting companies would work from.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. And kind of, I noticed that I had a bias, like I think last year, I was like, I wish there's, you know, more talented marketers in Japan or more talented salespeople. But when I really dived into the non-English speaking, like, you know, just Japanese speaking market, uh, because I do have N1, I just realized, oh, my God, there's actually a ridiculous amount of really talented people. But it's just because they're not in the English speaking Japanese world, you tend to not see, like, really, there actually is a lot of talent here.
0: That's correct. Especially when you're launching there's a skill set that you need to get launched. It might be the regulatory knowledge. It might be sales skills. It might might be market strategy as well, trying to find the right channels. And English might not be necessary to launch the business is my point.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back, and let me help you and your company scale. Find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. Yes, let's dive into the types of leadership that is in your excellent article, which we will be referring to in the notes. But yeah, could you tell us more about the types of leadership, starting with uh, launch leadership? Yes, we've sort of been talking around launch
0: leadership here, which is the person that you need to get launched in Japan. Depending on the type of launch that you're going to do in Japan, I would ask you to reference the other podcast that Tyson and I did. Are you going alone? Is it a 50-50 partnership? Are you doing an export model to a distributor? The type of person you need, might need distributor management skills, or they might need team building skills, or they might need those regulatory skills. Really doing good due diligence before you enter the market on how you're going to enter the market. And then what are the skills that person is going to need in the market, as opposed to how well do I get along with that person? You might want to subjugate your own ability to speak fluently with someone, to their actual strengths and the skill sets they have. Once you get off your weekly call of one hour with them, for the rest of the week, they're gonna be out knocking on doors or calling people or speaking to regulatory agencies, all of these things. They need to be good at that to get you launched. So looking hard at the skill sets to get up and going and making sure that these people, as well as yourself, are choosing the right partners and getting the right relationships in place early on. It's absolutely critical to good launch leadership, to get all of the partners in place. You're getting all the pieces in place um, and making sure that they're stitched together properly so that
1: they work well. Well, we mentioned quite a few distribution channels last time with Timothy. And in a future episode, we're gonna talk about actually how to choose the right distribution channel for your product or service. Mm,
0: Perfect. Let's say that you've got the right person in and they've got your business up and going. The uh, example I often use, and I get a yeah, 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 from people who understand this, they've gotten in, they've taken your business to 5, 10, maybe even 15, maybe 20 people. Then it's time to sort of ramp up the business. You want to get growth going, and it's going to take a while to do that. So after growth, launch leadership, Is a person who's gotten your business from zero to 15, 20 people, is that the right person to take you to 100 people and 150 people? Chances are very high that it's not the person. I love founders and entrepreneurs. They aren't necessarily growth leadership. The person that can take you from 20 to 100, 150, 200 and bigger is going to have a different skill set. There's a great example of founders who have not realize this. <laughs> and, and <laughs> <laughs> I think um, Google is a famous story, right? Um, the two founders perhaps ran themselves a bit too long before they finally realized that they needed an adult to run the business. And they brought Eric Schmidt in, and that's when Google
1: really took off. I would actually say a big part of my paid advisory mentorship coaching is I'm helping leaders who are very good at launch transition to the growth stage. So just really helping them change their mindset from doing things that is good, but doing things that scale or doing things that multiply your time and to really grow. It's really about multiplication. And I really agree there's launch versus growth. And the other company I founded, uh, we actually had school openers. We had some staff who they're really good for launching a school, but you know once it hits a certain size and where management really becomes a bigger part, they tend to not be as successful. And separating people into those two types actually, uh, I would say, made them a lot happier as well.
0: That makes perfect sense, Tyson. You're sort of touching on an aspect of getting management systems in place. To scale, as you mentioned, is all about getting the initial and uh, the management systems in place so that you have a foundation to stand on in order to scale. Part of that is also going to be uh, getting the culture going in some way from even if you're a huge company in in another country. You've launched here, and you're going to have to bootstrap a little bit. Um, and so, going from bootstrap mentality to growth and scale
1: mentality, it,
0: it's a different way of looking at the business and thinking about it,
1: isn't it? Yeah, and I find people who are really good, like, or where that you know that one-to-one relationships, like, I really see them excelling at, like, you know, the launch leadership, or like, you know, really good at sales, or just really pushing, pushing, pushing. But when it comes to the growth stage, it's like less about that one-on-one interactions, but how can that one-in-one interaction turn into a you talk to that one person, which then translate to ten people being on the same page. I guess another one is uh, in launch leadership. You know, flexibility is very important, being able to adjust to a lot of challenges happening on the spot. But you know, when you're growing. If you change your mind every week, I mean, you're going to drive the staff crazy. I'll (laughs) I'll, I'll say every day, you know, people are, they're not going to take your initiative seriously because there's just too many people and they're not going to commit just to stop and change direction. Yep, absolutely.
0: You know, I had uh, an experience where I started the company here. Ownership was in the U.S. They hired me to start the business. It was in a rather regulated industry, and so I had to get up to speed on regulatory things quickly, which luckily I was able to. But separate from me, they had hired someone for operations. When we got started on day two, and we sat down, we started talking, the operations person said to me, okay, so
1: when do we start hiring people?
0: And I said, we don't.
1: (laughs) I I love that. You and me. (laughs) I've heard that so many times, but please continue.
0: Yeah, no, and luckily after about another two weeks she said okay i can't do this she came from big insurance companies that was her role was managing vendors basically so she wasn't right and she admitted it and so she moved on and we brought someone else and he was an absolutely superb growth type operations person some experience with launch but really good at growth which is exactly what we needed and sorting that out getting that sussed out early on is really important for whether they're launch, whether they're growth, or whether they're even beyond that in terms of leadership. For example, someone who's very experienced um, and has a lot of
1: experience in certain sectors. Yeah. And also, I guess for like the growth leadership, I mean, we dived a little bit into like the personality type. Do you think you could elaborate a little bit more about like the right type of person who's actually really a growth stage person?
0: You know, growth leadership candidate or person is going to be someone who understands launch, and has experienced it, perhaps, but they also understand the, the need for structure. And they're able to help create structure. Uh, because you need to, in order to grow and to scale, you need to start building teams and turning things over to your team, to various teams, whereas a launch leader is going to be hands on, uh, just by default. And so knowing how to structure the business so that you can scale means they need to be experienced in, in that sort of an organizational structure as well. You still need to maintain some flexibility as you grow.
1: Definitely. A really good launch leader definitely has to be hands-on. Yes. Yes, Um, absolutely. The growth leader, they can do some hands-on stuff. I mean, they can train the staff how to do it, but really putting in the systems and processes in place, and also the communication. Do you think you could dive a little bit maybe in the differences in communication styles between launch and growth?
0: Personally, I think the communication skills and styles should be always be the same, regardless of what, if you're a leader. Any leader should be authentic, honest, and uh, they need to be what I call being culturally intelligent. It's based on the similar idea of emotional intelligence, they call EQ, but this is culturally intelligence. In other words, knowing about how cultures, and I don't necessarily mean national cultures think and uh, being sensitive to those things and working with them well. That's a skill that's going to work very well to put teams together, to communicate with them well, and to let yourself get ready to grow in and build out a good growth-oriented culture as well.
1: I agree 100%. Like let's say a launch leader, it's someone who really wants to get their hands dirty, really understand it themselves. But for a growth leader, you have to guide them. You have to set the vision and the strategy correctly, but also be flexible to change, but also allow other people to do their job and not get in the way. I mean, launch leadership is
0: about hustling. Uh, Growth leadership is about building out the systems, the management systems and the teams. And let's say that you're, you're going well, you're going along quite well, but things happen. As we know, a couple of years ago, COVID happened. Various things happen. Suddenly, you're looking at your Japan business thinking, oh, that's going okay. Oh, that's going not so bad over there. And then suddenly, your CEO or your country manager leaves. Maybe they move. Maybe they quit. Or perhaps you find out that you've gotten to a certain point and they're not able to take you any further and you need to change leaders, especially when you're faced with a sudden gap. Even if you decide that you need to, remove your leader. It leaves you with a leadership gap and a rudderless ship is going to flounder. And so the next stage that I referred to, I call is interim leadership. And this is when you have got a gap in leadership and you need someone to either, for example, step in and keep the vessel going in the right direction, or perhaps you need someone to come in. And as an interim leader, take the business and shift the direction a little bit, or maybe you need to alter the direction a little bit because the previous leader was taking you in the wrong direction in various ways. And so trying to find a permanent C-level, country manager level person is going to take a while. It could take a year. Finding that right country manager is important, but can you leave the role open for a year? I say no, and you don't need to because you can bring in someone on a quote, interim basis who can actually step in and who already is, as I said, culturally intelligent. They understand the market in Japan. They're perhaps Japanese, they're perhaps not Japanese, but they know how businesses work at this level and they've been in this type of a role before. This was the original starting point for me when I was thinking about this because there is a huge pool of people who are experienced, who are not too old, necessarily, but they're well experienced, but for whatever reason, they're not part of the very structured, traditional permanent employment system. And if you stop and look at these people, perhaps they don't want to work as a permanent employee anymore, for whatever reason. If you start opening up your window of potential people, there's a whole pool of people that you could actually tap into, who could actually get going from day one, because they've done this before albeit learning about your business is important, but they know what they're doing and they've done this.
1: Have you ever found yourself having trouble creating a business plan? Do you pretty much operate on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis, creating confusion and chaos in your organization? If that sounds like you, I recommend you join my Entrepreneur Bootcamp. In my bootcamp, you will set an achievable but challenging Revenue target for the current or following fiscal year. And we will create a business plan to make it a reality. See more in the show notes below. And now back to our episode. I can really relate to the interim leader and I would probably consider myself an interim leader, but my consultancy is going very well. So I probably won't be doing any interim leadership. So if I became an interim leader, I would try to make sure I did have the right people in the right positions and also making sure that let's say the marketing and sales strategy and product is set but after i get that set and the right people in the right place you know it gets a little bit boring and uh i want to go clean another house <laughs> <laughs> you like to fix uppers Pretty much, yeah. Fix it up. Then it's like, okay, now the issues that we're facing are a little bit boring. Now it's more, let's say people issues. And it's like, nah, I just try to get the, the marketing sales and hire the right people and put them in the right places. So when the next leader comes in, they don't have to work on fix it mode. They can work on scale it mode.
0: Sure. I mean, I, I had an experience that put me onto this, where I came in as an interim leader outside of the normal structure of the business. I went in for three months. After three months, the leader that was in place left, and it turned out that I was actually better set up to be the quote-unquote permanent or long-term leader of that business. And so often you can look at an interim leader, and if you have a good relationship with them, as if HQ and the leader has a good relationship, you can see after six months of search or eight months or nine months of search, do you really want to bring in an outside candidate or is the person who's been running the business are they actually potentially a good long-term leadership solution for you? And, And do they want to? Maybe they do. So I wouldn't refer to it as like a probationary thing, but in a way it's sort of getting to know each other, especially at that level, you want to make sure that you're understanding your
1: leader well, right? I did experience that in my other company as well. We have a couple people who I'll say they're world class senior level people, but they just don't want to work for one company, they want to work for multiple companies. So you know, they split their time. But from our end, we get someone who's world class, which might actually be hard to get someone at that level full time. And we can kind of get them and they can really build up that team and provide the knowledge and skills necessary that would actually be hard to access full time.
0: That's exactly a good point. Thank you for bringing it up because a lot of the things we're talking about now, interim leadership, and for example, if you need to make a big change or start something new, you may not be able to bring on someone who's been a CFO for 20 years on a full-time basis, permanent basis, and perhaps you don't need it. And those people perhaps don't want to work for just one company. And they would love to put their skills to use in two, three other companies. And so this type of strategic leadership, the beauty of it is that it's very flexible in that we're not talking necessarily about nine to five, 40 hour week roles always. It could be a more, in some countries in the US, they're calling it fractional leadership. And particularly the, the fourth type of strategic leadership, which is very similar, is something that I call transformation leadership. These tend to fall into two categories. One is the complete restructuring when you need to completely change the business. You need a certain type of leader or if your business is going well but you want to start something new that may be adjacent to it but you don't want the existing resources to take their eyes off the ball i have an example of someone of a company i'm talking to they've been in business for 10 years in in what they're doing and they're extremely good at it and now they want to take part of what they do and they want to create a cpg business out of that which is completely adjacent completely connected to it but they can't take their other operational people and ask them to work on consumer packaged goods and marketing. They don't have the right skill sets and they need to keep their other business growing. And so they're going to be looking for a very specific type of leader. And so that's starting a new strategic project is also a form of uh, transformation or or strategic leadership here as well. And as you brought up, Tyson, that, that person could be a three-day-a-week type of uh, c-level person who does that where they guide the team to get things done
1: cool yeah and i think you did a really good job explaining like you know the flexibility of finding the right person thank you it's um
0: you know any recruiting company is going to push permanent employment because that's what the market is based on The, the whole japan labor market is based on permanent employment therefore the lack of liquidity and I don't think that we have seen enough and we haven't seen a real market for this type of flexible strategic leadership um, develop yet.
1: I wanted to, because, yeah, you mentioned like fractional leadership in the U.S. And uh, in our case, uh, my other company, a lot of the t- really top quality talent, it was through the CEO's network. But uh, is there actually a place in Japan to search for fractional like leadership?
0: No, uh, this the market is very nascent and there isn't necessarily a pool of people like that that's been developed yet sort of like board leaders as well there's no market for that as well so it's that new and I personally try not to use quote fractional unquote leadership because I think it puts the thinking into into kind of a small box it's like okay that means part-time and that's not really the way I want to look at this I prefer to look at this as strategic you're coming on to lead a strategic project or team or company And the conditions thereof are very flexible. And that could be for six months only, for one year only, it could be three days a week, et cetera. And the conditions of strategic leadership can and should be flexible is the way that I like to look at this.
1: Yeah, I think uh, what you said is important. And I I agree 100%. If you start with the term fractional, you have kind of like a narrow mindset, like in your options. Let's say rather than focusing on what you really need, like you mentioned, the strategy, then you find someone to match the strategy, which could be someone who could work, let's say, not full time. But I guess if you start from the bottom and you kind of think narrow, that might bring you a narrow view, which will then limit your strategy and options.
0: Sure, and the and you know on the demand side, companies are not going to come out and say, "I'm looking for a fractional CEO." Um, <laughs> you wouldn't mute, that's that wouldn't be your approach, right? It's not what you want. You <laughs> want you want a full on hundred hour a week kind of CEO is what you want. <laughs>
1: coming in for the first time. And I want to finish this episode off with, I guess, what are the advantages and disadvantages of using a Japanese or foreign leader?
0: One of the strong advantages of a Japanese leader is their ability to create relationships within the Japanese business community. They will know people. I mean, if you need your business to be part of K Danran or to network with those types of people or with regulatory agencies, often a Japanese leader will have that network um, already in place. I like to think that um, a talented non-Japanese leader whose culturally intelligence is, is high enough and their language abilities are good enough that they can get things done a little bit quicker than a Japanese leader might. A Japanese leader might have a bit more reticence to push things too quickly whereas a foreign leader can perhaps come in and because they are a non-japanese we can do things um, in the market that are a little bit outside of the normal and still get things done quicker and there's a there's a huge pool of culturally intelligent language proficient
1: uh, non-japanese in the market thank you for sharing that and where can we find you on the internet you can find me at Sinovate.jp.
0: That's Sinovate with two Ns.jp. And if you visit, you'll see the four practice areas and links in the Sinovate Insights, links to the articles that describe just what we've talked about today,
1: Tyson. And we're going to link to it in the show notes as well. Great. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. Any companies considering to do market entry or if you are unsatisfied or dissatisfied with your current leader, I think kind of looking into these articles, listening to this episode will give you a better picture of finding the right person for the right situation. I certainly believe that's true. (laughs) So it's always wonderful having a chat with you, Timothy, and thank you so much.
0: Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this, Tyson. It's something that's near and dear to my heart and i think it's incredibly important it's crucial for success in the in the japanese market to make sure you've got the right people at the right stage in your life cycle of business in japan
1: i agree 100 percent and thank
0: you so much thank you so much have a great day